Radioland, Podcastville, and all of our LARB readers. My name is Eric Newman, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Joining me is my co-host, Medea Ocher, the managing editor of LARB. Hi, Eric. And today, we are excited to have with us novelist Karen Te Yamashita, author of Through the Arc of the Rainforest, Brazil Maru, and Tropic of Orange, among others. Her latest work, Letters to Memory, is difficult to define, caught somewhere between documentary, memoir, and the epistolary novel. Written to characters or figures who represent the disciplines of the historian, the classicist, and the anthropologist, Letters interrogates the painful history of the Japanese-American internment on U.S. soil during World War II from the vantage point of Yamashita's family. The memories explored in letters that are drawn from and juxtaposed alongside materials from the Yamashita family archive at UC Santa Cruz include correspondence, diary entries, newspaper clippings, and photographs. Welcome to the show, Karen. Thank you. Would you mind reading just a short selection from Letters to Memory? Right. Dear Homer, you ask, even though you had from the very beginning suggested it, even though the body of your scholarship, as I interpret it, is given to this idea, why forgiveness? I puzzle over this, but sense that it is a question from which you cannot be released. I also appreciate that your query is Socratic and teacherly, an insistence to pursue my thinking, saying that despite your guidance, I do not understand is a kind of understanding. Forgiveness you offer requires the confrontation of two parties, a meeting face-to-face between people who have the capacity to hurt each other, and thus perhaps to discover grace. This is to carry the idea into practice. You translate the request, please forgive us, to say, please receive us in our fullness, But such encounters are impossible because all the players are dead, jailers and inmates, Chizu and Kei. And what about evil, you ask? This is a much larger question. As for history, you note the historian's problem, that writing about an event is not the same as living it. History is an inquiry, and there is an attempt here to, as you say, clear the ground with these letters, meaning perhaps to properly bury the dead. Yet even so, you say, we are rendered speechless, dumb, when it comes to the hearts. There are, you agree, things beyond history, which history may point to, yet obscure. Beyond or behind history are glimpses of what matters. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's beautiful. Can you start by just opening it up for listeners? What compelled you to write this? Like, how did you come to this particular kind of project? Because it's very different than what you've done before. Very different. Well, when the last of my father's siblings died, my cousins and I had this, well, all this stuff, Mm -hmm. right? We had photographic albums, we had letters and correspondence. And I had collected a sheaf of letters when one of my aunts had died, when I just took it from her apartment, and I had kept it all those years. And then what I discovered is that my cousins had the other letters. And so we started to put the letters together, and I thought, well, this would be an interesting archive to collect, and let's see what would come of it. So I had, you know, student archivists during the summer take these letters and then, you know, put them out in chronological order, and we began to see what story was. And the letters that most interest me 
and I think are most interesting to the archive are the letters of the war years of World War II. And the oh, now how many years? What's the kind of temporal boundary of this archive? Okay, well, it starts from the turn of the century when my grandparents okay. come, okay. and it's actually contemporary. I mean, much of it, it goes into the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And this is all available... This is the thing that I find very fascinating <laughs> and nerve-wracking from my own projected standpoint, is that all of this is actually available now for people to see yes. at the UC Santa Cruz archives. In special collections at the right. McHenry Library. And there's also a website that has some of the materials yes. available. Yes, yes. Right? So what was that part? We'll talk about how you pulled the book together, but what was that like putting your family's memories out there for anybody to look at. <laughs> it's fine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how the rest of the family feels. My mother would not have appreciated it. All right, that's what you say at the end of the book. So how did you deal with that? Well, you know, she was an in-law. She was married to my father, and it's really my father's family, the Amashtas, and okay. their archive. And they were a more garrulous kind of families. So they were more forward and talkative about themselves and their stories. This might actually be a good opportunity for you to tell us a little bit about the history of your family and the story that you have pieced together through the archive and in this book. My grandparents, the original Issei, the first generation, they came to the United States in San Francisco at the turn of the century. And my grandfather, Kishiro, he came and studied Western tailoring. So he was a tailor, and he opened a tailor business in Oakland, California. And then he returned to Japan and uh, arranged for a marriage there and married my grandmother and started that family in Oakland. So this starts in, oh, 1900s, that, that period. They have seven children in Oakland. They raise them in Oakland and Berkeley. All of the children go to Cal Berkeley. And my grandfather, the tailor, dies in 1930s, and the family continues. And then, of course, in 1941 is the beginning of World War I with Japan. Mm -hmm. And then by 1942, the Japanese Executive Order 9066 by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt incarcerates large swaths of folks on the Pacific Coast. And so they're sent to camp from 1942 on to 1945, until the end of the war. And before you had these materials and that kind of access to the story of their incarceration during the war, was there a way in which you understood that incarceration or that they spoke about it to you? Or did this really feel like your first kind no, of No, it wasn't the first. I mean, point? you know, I'm pretty old. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on the young end of radical opposition to things that happened in the end of the 60s and 70s. I went to school in the 60s and 70s, and I've also written about this in iHotel and right. studied it. So I am part of that generation that discovered that Hassan our parents had been incarcerated during the war. And so this is not a surprise to me. But I would say that when I was growing up, you know, the Nisei would get together, our parents would get together, and the question would always be, what camp were you in? And for my generation, a young bunch of kids running around playing, we thought our folks met in camp. They must have been having a great time. So, Oh, so yes. for you, camp signified something, something totally different. Very different. 
Okay. They went out camping. They were in a special camp. There was some kind of way that they were able to meet. Your generation, it sounds like, existed in almost parallel relation to this information. You were hearing it, like you're saying, that Mm -hmm. you can hear these words, what camp were you in, but your parents provided you none of that context. Right, because they were protecting us, of course, and they were also trying to forget that this episode happened, and there was a lot of shame involved Mm. with these events, um, and a lot of anger and hurt, and also the wish that that we would not suffer it and would not have to know about it and it would pass away. But by the end of the 60s, ethnic studies and civil rights movements were ongoing, especially in the universities. The first would be the African-American studies and black civil rights studies was beginning. And so people of color were all part of this project bringing that kind of relevancy into the universities and also to increase our numbers in the university because our numbers were small. So all of the groups harken back to these old histories, whether it was slavery, whether it was about alien land laws or the Chinese Exclusion Act, all of these things in which immigrants were denied their rights or they were denied access to citizenship, for example. This became part of a learning period for that generation, for my generation. How did you approach these materials? I imagine that part of the process when you're looking through your family's archive and these letters is that you are, on the one hand, remembering things that you didn't quite have the full story about, but then also learning things that you had no idea about. What was that like for you to kind of go back into that material? I thought it was heart-rendering, really, because I knew these things happened. But to read the letters at the period of time and to hear from my aunts and uncles what they were experiencing was very painful and very sad. Some of it was funny. You mean funny, Mm -hmm. like the kind of day-to-day Day-to-day sorts of things. But, you know, my father was, he was always a positive sort of person. Which comes out in the book a lot. Comes out in the book. And so he made light of a lot of things that happened and talked about the funny things that happened Mm -hmm. and the absurd things. My mother had a more bitter take to it, a little bit more sour sense of that injustice. But my father took it more lightly. But I realized at some point I asked my father to come to a Sunday school class and to talk to my students about what had happened. And he started to talk about his experience and what had happened to him, to these students. And there was a moment at which he just broke down and cried. And I'd never seen that before happen. It was a realization. I think it was a realization for those of us, Sanseis, in those years that this was a very painful period that our parents really were unable to speak of. Did it seem like after that point when he came to your class that he spoke of it more? Or did he always need a sort of He started to write about it, but my father had had a stroke by then, and so there were disability issues for him, which had to do with moving the right side of his body, and so mm-hmm. he was trying to type, and he was... So he did try to write about it, and he became more vocal. I think that generation did because we forced them to tell us what happened. 
There's always, to me, we were talking about this a little bit before we started the show, there's an odd series of desires and disappointments that we bring to any archive, right? And I imagine that those desires and disappointments are even more heightened when you have intense personal investment in the figures that you're looking at. So can you explain, like, did going through this archive... Did it help answer questions that you had about your family, or did it only further obscure things that you thought you knew about them? One of the things that I was really surprised to find out was that my aunt and my grandmother, at the beginning of this period where they were being removed from Oakland and to Tamperan because they were removed to assembly centers and in horse stalls. Mm. And then they removed finally into these, well, in the case of my family, to Topaz in Utah, to Delta, Utah. One of the things that I didn't know was that my aunt and my grandmother took a train and they were given, they were released from being incarcerated in the beginning. And they took a train all the way to Washington, D.C. so that my aunt could testify at a treason trial there. And my aunt was very talkative about this period, and she talked about it, but she never talked about this particular incident. And it's obviously in the letters. So she recounts what happens as she and my grandmother travel across the United States by train to Washington, D.C. And that was surprising to me. And I had to dig around to figure out why it happened, what exactly she was going testify for, and the route they took, and then how long she stayed out of camp or, you know, imprisonment before she finally decided to join the family. It seemed like one of the things that was in discussion about that period with your aunt was the importance of her work and whether the importance of her work outweighed the potential safety of the family and potential safety of your aunt. Do you think that she ever understood the importance of that work? in a way that perhaps was disappointing to her. From what I'm reading here, I mean, and what I know about my aunt and the family, she was the youngest daughter. I feel that the family wanted to keep together, and they also thought that she was very young and naive. They didn't entirely give her credit for being able to be out there independently. And so that's a bit of the tension that's going on in with you see these letters. However, I think in the end, she worked for student relocation. She left camp to work in Philadelphia with the Quakers and was really instrumental in getting, I don't know, is it 2000? I don't know what the numbers of Japanese American students who were able to finish their education mm-hmm. in universities and colleges outside of the Pacific Coast. Mm-hmm. But she was really instrumental in helping those students leave camp to finish their educations. And I think she knew that this was the most relevant work that she did in her life. And I think the family knew that too, that she was very respected for that. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We will return to our conversation with Karen Te Yamashita in a moment, but now we turn to this week's book recommendation. So we have Chiara Barzini back in the studio with us today. 
Kiara is the author of the novel Things That Happened Before the Earthquake. And Kiara is kind enough to recommend a book. Kiara, what book will you be recommending? I would like to recommend Sylvia by Leonard Michaels, which I think has either been reissued or for some reason has come back to the surface. And there's nothing I love more than a novel by an author that people say, you know, forgotten for some reason, you know, undervalued. I'm I'm ready to go. (laughs) Exactly. So I was very curious about it and I got very sucked in from day one. Sylvia is an incredibly charismatic female character, wild and self-destructive. And it's a very sexy, tormented explosive love story and i'm excited by those me too (laughs) i love the setting you know it's in new york there's just this sort of memory of how the city used to be of the golden age where you could just show up to people's houses and smoke pot and hang out and lose your time lose your sense of self and talk about politics and books and no social media and no Ego manifested itself in different forms. Um, So I was happy to go back down that kind of era and to read about these two tormented lovers. And we were just saying that I had been recently hearing about Sylvia also. So there is something in the air about this book. in the air, yeah. I think people are excited to read sexy love stories again, maybe. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I don't know when we stopped being excited about been, sexy love stories. I, I don't know. I think everyone's being very analytical these days. Mm. There's a lot of self-reflection and we've been so burdened by politics and by the horrors that we're not going to mention that people are kind of wanting to escape a little bit. <clears throat> not that Sylvia's necessarily an escape novel, actually, but in some ways, maybe. At least to different concerns perhaps, than the political ones that engage us day to day and that seem gradually getting worse. Mm -hmm. Maybe not that gradually either. (laughs) Okay, and will you tell us the title again and the author? It's Sylvia by Leonard Michaels. Thank you so much, Kara. Thank you. Bye. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, and we now return to our interview with Karen Te Yamashita, author of Letters to Memory. One thing I did want to ask, in, in dealing with this archive, you're a novelist, right? But here you are balancing text and images. How did you do that? Was there a pull at relying mostly on engaging with the text or relying on allowing the photographs and the text to speak to each other in some way? Well, it's a complicated process, I Mm -hmm. think, that I was pulling together. But what I wanted to do with the archive was to pull out materials that pointed to context or connections to uh, civil rights. Mm -hmm. So that's what I was interested in. What did the family do, and who were their contacts on the outside? What were their influences? Who did they know, and who helped? So, what was the relationship of this event to the events of civil rights as they continue and as they were continuing? 
So that was my question. It was not to create a family saga or to talk about the family in that way. It was to talk about civil rights. That was my political motivation for pulling the materials from the archive. The archive's huge. Yeah. So mm-hmm. there's all, so many stories that can be pulled from it. So that was what I was doing. The other thing I was trying to do was to sort of to figure out something that I thought my father might be interested in knowing. I mean, to think about how he would approach the subject over the long period, over a historic period, and who he would be interested in being in conversation with, and what sort of mentorship would guide me to understand what those ideas might be. And that's why I went to historians who were in classical histories or literature to think about something older than this contemporary, more contemporary period, and to think about the legacy of war philosophically or over the long haul, the long period of belief, where that has taken us and where it comes from. Well, because you do, the, the book is organized, we should say, is really difficult to explain or <laughs> articulate exactly how this book is structured. But one major frame for it are letters that are imaginative letters, right, that are written to, I think there's five figures, each of them who represent a kind of, we could say, like, critical perspective or a way into some of these, like, larger questions and into the intimate material of the archive. In the beginning, you do talk about how this particular filtering mechanism that you've used tells but i think the word that you use is like one slice of the many stories that are available right so how did you actually go through and pick out that because the other thing that's frustrating about archives just like real life is that they're not always coherent and they don't pull together a kind of narrative thread that we would want and that readers can grip onto. So can you talk a little bit about the editorial process, I guess, of collecting, collating, and then finding these conversations that would allow you to reveal some of the narratives that you were pulling at in the archive? Well, what I pulled from the archive, I think, were things most interesting to me and curious. Mm. But also I thought I wanted to look at you know, systems of belief, and then also to ask the question of why would anyone help us or Mm. these people? And so there's an extended archive. It's not just the archive of the family, but it's an archive that extends, for instance, to Howard Thurman, who was an African-American theologian at the time, but he was also a mystic, that he had in the 30s met Mahatma Gandhi. He and his wife had met Mahatma Gandhi. And what that had to do with this relationship to my father and to my aunt, Mm. with whom he was a friend. And so there were things of that nature that I pulled from the archive that I thought were particularly interesting that were connected to a larger story that was beyond the family, but also a larger thinking of belief systems. So then I wanted then also to figure out What meaning did Mahatma Gandhi have for the reading of this and for civil rights? Mm. Obviously, he's huge. Right, right, right. (laughs) (laughs) And how did it influence what happens later or what are the conversations that happen between my father and Howard Thurman and then the larger picture of civil rights as we know it? And so this is a small space to make these kinds of connections, I think. 
So you're still asking me about process, right? Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not really helping you. It's, I would just have to say this is sort of an organic process. I can't tell you. I knew that because the archive for me, most interestingly, um, was letters, mm. that the form that it would take for in the book would be epistolary. Okay. And that in order to, for it to be epistolary, also I had to be addressing someone. And so I made some choices about scholarship and kinds of scholarship that I wanted to address myself to in order to speak to a muse out there. Mm, mm. So that's, I felt, necessary in order to make that connection. Because I don't know if you know my other work, but I, I always feel that there is a narrator. Yeah. But the narrator is not necessarily the author. Right. And the author right. creates a voice through whom to speak, a narrator. So even if the author is saying, I, the I is a created character, created by the author in order to ex make this expression. So I needed to have someone to talk to, I guess, <laughs> is what I'm saying. <laughs> right. And so I created these semi-fictional muse or, or epistolary partners with whom to have a conversation. Does that make sense? Yeah, it yeah. does. I, I'm wondering if you're creative impulse also comes into there are moments uh i think it's actually in the train story where they're in the letters they're passing by a farm i think and you notice this the narrator notices this in the letter <laughs> and then wants to kind of mark that as like oh and that was a camp where they would be or someone else was going to be in just a couple of years later that's the kind of Thing for like a fiction writer that it's like it perfectly draws together mm -hmm. but the reality was it wasn't it wasn't right yeah. so there's a lots of these kind of detours and retours that you make in the text and can you talk about that experience creatively i was going to say that i like the phrase that i think that you use in that passage where i think it's a it's a, it's a train for them into the future but it's not of mm -hmm. course because it's not it is in, in many ways yes. in that they are heading to inevitably the kind of incarceration that they will face for the number of years that uh, the war lasts. But also, it isn't a vision of their future in many ways. It's technically they're not building the concentration camps right there at that location. So it's not, you want to make it fit and it doesn't quite fit. But it is yeah. a military camp. Mm -hmm. And eventually Germans are imprisoned there. And right. American soldiers are training there for winter warfare. Presumably winter warfare in Russia are on the front there. So it is and it isn't. But I thought what's also interesting is that my aunt says in that letter that the black porter, the African-American oh, porter, right. whispers to her, whispers to her that it's a concentration camp they're building out there. So he, because he travels, he's been traveling this route, he knows what's going on along the route, and he sees these preparations for war. This is my thinking about it because it's only right, a sentence. Right, exactly. Right. And he also tells her in that letter that he has a friend back in Los Angeles. His name is Tanaka. So he has a Japanese-American friend. And so he knows what's about to happen or he, th mm. he thinks he knows. He can intuit it, yeah. Right. And so he, he suggests this to my aunt. And I think, why does he whisper it? Because there's, why? Yeah. <laughs> he's saying to her, he's trying to say, don't come back. Yeah. I did want to circle back to the passage that you read at the very beginning of this conversation where you talk about forgiveness, right? And why forgive? Can you tell us a little bit about 
where you might have ended up with that. Because in many ways, the country, has it ever asked for forgiveness? I'm mm. not sure that it has <laughs> in a way that is sufficient, at least, um, right? But so it does seem like a question to really grapple with, especially for your generation and perhaps the generations after you. Because in many ways, maybe the generation before you, they might have grappled it with it more immediately, right? Mm. So how do you think about that now? Is there is there a way in which you understand forgiveness? Mm. I guess I begin that because my father was a Methodist pastor. He was a mm-hmm. minister, and that that would have been his ideal. Mm-hmm. And also that, you know, after the war, my father came home early to—he was one of the first Japanese Americans to come back to Oakland, and he opened up the Oakland West 10th Japanese Methodist Church, and it had uh, been boarded up during the war, and it was holding all of the belongings of the Japanese who were— incarcerated. So, slowly, these folks came back to Oakland and picked up their stuff. And so, he started a hostel there, and he started to receive these folks coming back. And I thought that one of the things that I really noticed about that is that he really wanted to find a way for people to reintegrate into their lives. And I'm sure that forgiveness was on his mind. But in terms of that, I think, for me, I think my generation thought about reparations mm-hmm. and justice. Yeah. So we were much more a part of that demand for social justice. But so many years later, I'm also reading this and thinking about my muse, who is saying forgiveness. It's a very powerful idea. And that struck me that my father wanted that for all of us. At the same time, he was also working with a very divided community because during the war, there was a loyalty question, and you either answered yes, yes, or yes, no, or no, no, or yes, no, or... But if any part of that was no, those folks were at odds with each other. Mm. Many of those Japanese Americans were placed in Tule Lake, some of them uh, returned to Japan. They renounced their uh, citizenship. And to this day, that's been a powerfully divisive question. Mm. At the same time, there were young men who were drafted and went to war and died and were part of that war effort, both in Japan and in Europe. And those wounds have not been healed. I think many people went to die without forgiving each other for that uh, rift, which was forced on them by, by a loyalty questionnaire, by the military, and by the United States government. So who, who do you forgive for that? Yeah. Right. right. How do you think that um, revisiting this history at this particular historical moment, like since you've been kind of swimming in the archive enough to produce something from it, what lessons do you think that we can take from both the substance that Letters to Memory is drawn from, but also from Letters to Memory itself, as we face what seems like a return of the mm-hmm. repressed in history? Mm-hmm. I or really... even the not really repressed. I should, I should be careful about saying that it, that it is repressed right. at all. No, I think those of us who have been part of the protest, been part of this, who are third generation. Of course, my mother died a few years ago. She was almost 99. 
So you can see that her generation is very old now. Mm. But I think, and I think she would be so disappointed, so disappointed with yeah. things that as they are now, the attitude toward immigrants, the the Muslim ban, the DACA. I mean, she would be she would be shocked to see that all these things have returned. And this is, she would have wondered why she lived through all of this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Karen. Thank you so for much. For coming on the show and for talking to us about your excellent book. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. We've been speaking with Karen Te Yamashita, the author of the newly released Letters to Memory. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And if you like the show, leave us a review and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Ernesto Oleano. Our researcher is Chloe Chap. Production assistant from William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who's no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books.